Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face. Now, what I want to do is just kind of talk to you briefly about this shutting and sealing of the gate. Because this passage has been misinterpreted for a long, long time. If, if many of you may or may not, as many of you may or may not know, the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem is sealed up. It's sealed up by the Muslims and all, not all, but many Christians get all excited and say, that's a fulfillment of Ezekiel and how this gate was shut because Jesus went through it and all this stuff. Actually, if you look closely, the eastern gate is shut after Jesus enters the Millennial Kingdom Temple. You remember, we've already seen in chapter 43, the Spirit of God comes through, enters into the Holy of Holies, and His glory is there. And now He's taken back to the outer gate and it, that faces east, and it's sealed, and it's shut, because the Lord's gone through. That is the outer gate of, or this right here in the passage we just read, is the outer gate of the temple complex. The sealed eastern gate in Jerusalem right now is not a gate to the temple complex. It's, it's the gate of what? Of the city. Actually, if you even know, the Muslims actually put a cemetery outside that gate. They, they were afraid that, you know, they, they've heard the prophecies about the Messiah coming through the eastern gate. And so they put a cemetery outside that gate because no self-respecting Jew would ever walk across gravestones or graves. graves. So that's going to keep him from going. What's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation period? Remember our study from Revelation? What's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation period? It's going to be totally leveled. The whole, there's going to be a great earthquake and everything's going to be leveled. The city's going to split into three parts. The center part is going to be raised up as the highest. And the north part's going to be flattened and the south part's going to be flattened. And if you remember what we've been looking at, this temple complex is actually going to be looking over the city of Jerusalem to the south. So when the people try to take this passage and make it apply to the sealed gate of the city of Jerusalem right now, it doesn't work because that's a gate to the city. This is the gate to the temple complex. Totally two different gates. And it won't be sealed until after Jesus comes back in to enter into the Millennial Kingdom temple to begin the Millennial Kingdom. All right? Now it also says only the prince, uh, as we've already looked at, I believe it's David, can sit in the vestibule of the eastern gate to eat bread before the Lord, but he, he only can go in and out the same way. Because the gates, if you remember in the, the handout we gave you of the picture of the temple, they're huge, big gates, and they're deep. And you can go into them, you just can't get all the way through if it's sealed up. And so the, the David will be able to go in, in, certain, in that one, and only he will go in and eat bread before the Lord, but then he'll go out the same way that he came in because he can't pass through. All right? <clears throat> but now when Ezekiel is taken through the northern gate into the inner temple area, he sees the glory of God in the temple, and he falls on his face. You see there in verse 4, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. What I want to do is show you, just in a few places, how this is a very common reaction 
of Ezekiel and others. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, look at verses 26 through 28. This is when Ezekiel sees God there at the Kebar Canal. And above the expanse, over their heads, this is the heads of the cherubim, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was, like a, was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. That's a rainbow. Keep that in mind. That's going to be important later on. So was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And then I heard the, one of, the voice of one speaking. So when, when Ezekiel meets God and sees him, sees his glory, when he shows up there on the heads of the, above the cherubim, above the heads of the cherubim on the throne, he just falls on his face. Go to chapter 3. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, And the hand of the Lord was upon me, there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I'll speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kebar Canal. And I fell on my face. Again, he sees the glory of the Lord, and again, he can't help but fall down on his face. That means he's falling forward, correct? He's falling on his face in worship. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal. And I fell on my face. Is Ezekiel having an equil equilibrium problem? He's having a glory problem. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to just take a couple seconds to talk about this. I think many of us need to be reminded of the glory of God, of the holiness of God. Yes, we can call him Abba, which means daddy. Yes, we've been brought into an awesome relationship where we can go boldly before the throne. But I think many of us have taken such advantage of that to the point that we've lost our understanding of the holiness. Well, let me put it this way. How did Jesus teach us to pray in the template for prayer? Hallowed be your name. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I think nowadays when people talk about God as the big guy upstairs, they've lost some of that understanding of his glory. And I just want to remind you of that fact. Actually, Ezekiel's not the only one that had this kind of reaction. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John said, and, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands like one, sorry, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. When John sees Jesus in his glorified form, remember he prayed, Jesus himself prayed in chapter 17 of John, Father, return to me the glory that I had with you before the creation of the world. He humbled himself. He limited himself. Even though Jesus was 100% man and 100% God at the exact same time, he limited himself. I'm sure it felt pretty good when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory started to shine through his flesh. You remember that when Peter and James and John were up there with him and he was transfigured before them? It probably felt pretty good to let some of his glory out, but he limited himself for a season. And when he was right, to go to, right before he went to the cross, he prayed, bring me back to the glory that I had before the world was created. And when John now sees Jesus, whom, by the way, John's been hanging out with Jesus every day for three years, he leaned on his breast at the Lord's Supper he was intimate and close. He described himself as the one whom Jesus loved. When he sees Jesus in his glory, his response is not, hey, buddy. His response is to fall on his face again in fear of the holiness. Oh, by the way, do you realize, you may not realize this, you're going to probably get to do this as well. Now you say, Jim, you mean where every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess? No, there's going to be a time when the whole world acknowledges that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. No, no, I'm going to show you from Scripture. Go to chapter 4 of Revelation that I believe scripturally each of us will have an opportunity to have this response. In Revelation chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 11. And after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. That's the same one he had just seen, Jesus. Now he hears the voice saying, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian. And all around the throne was a what? Rainbow. Had the appearance of an emerald, just like Ezekiel saw. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. By the way, that's the church. If you remember from our study of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus makes these promises to the church. He says, whoever has an ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he promises, I'm going to give you golden crowns. You're going to sit with me on thrones. You're going to be wearing white robes. Those are promises to the church. At this point, he's now taken up into heaven, and the church is already there. The rapture has occurred, and there's 24 thrones. We'll get to the 24 in just a second. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, I know it's been a long time since we got to chapter, since we started in chapter one, where, where Ezekiel saw what he saw, but did anybody remember what the cherubim had? They had four faces. And these are the just the same, he, he's seeing the cherubim around the throne. 
And the four living creatures, verse 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around within and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's the church, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now you say, Jim, okay, I might be with you on the fact that this is the church of 24 elders, but where do you see me there? Well, let me tell you, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, back when the number of priests got so big that they all couldn't serve in the temple at the same time, God had David break the priests into 24 divisions, each division representing the rest of them. And if you remember, the Bible says in, in John chapter, sorry, Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah, who was of the priestly division of Abijah, when it was his time to serve in the temple, he went, and that's when he, of course, met the angel who told him that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to have a son and they were to name him John and all that. The priests were broken down into 24 divisions and each division took their turn serving in the temple. You go to 1 Chronicles chapter 25, you'll see that they had the same problem with the worship leaders. And actually David had all the musicians broken down into 24 divisions and they took turns serving in the temple. I believe the Bible's showing us that these 24 thrones are representative of the whole church. It's going to happen for eternity. I think there's a chance you and I might be able to get to sit on one of those thrones when it's our turn to serve, when it's our turn to sit there. And when the holy, holy, holy continues as it does day and night, we're going to take our crown and fall on our face and offer it to him. Isn't that pretty cool? Now, let me also clarify something. Have you noticed in each of these instances, they fell forward under their own will? There's a lot of people that try to turn this into the slaying in the spirit, which is taught out there today in many churches. And let me tell you, slaying in the spirit does not line up with the scripture. Don't let anybody say, well, the spirit just took control. I, I didn't know what was going on. I was just out of control. The Bible actually says in the book of Corinthians that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, when I'm preaching, even though the spirit of God is in control, I still know what's going on. And I can control whether or not I let him speak through me or whether or not I say what I want to say. Even though it's an amazing thing happening that as I'm preaching and teaching the word of God, the spirit of God showing me where to go and telling me what to say, I still am in control. I can't say, well, <laughs> it just happened. I don't know what. No, no, no. The Bible shows us that whenever we worship God, we still have our will involved. Oh, years ago, this pastor came to me and he was among a group of pastors that were all into this slaying in the spirit stuff and he sat down with me at a restaurant trying to get me to join him. And I just told him, I said, look, I don't see it in the Bible. I see people falling down backwards a couple of times in the Bible, but it's not a good thing. In John chapter 18, when the crowd comes to arrest Jesus, he says, who have you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In the scripture, actually, in the Greek, he doesn't say, I'm he. In the Greek, he says, I am. Oh, by the way, when he said, I am, what was he saying? I'm God. That was the name that God gave to Moses so they'd always know his name. Jesus said, I am. Oh, by the way, what happened? 
to that crowd that came to arrest Jesus when he said, I am? The Bible says they fell backwards. Knocked back. Not intentional worship. Knocked back. See people falling down backwards? It's not a good thing. Ananias and Sapphira probably fell down backwards. Was that a good thing? No. And so I told him, I said, I don't see it in the Bible. This was his answer to me. He said, I know it's not in the Bible. When it happens to you, though, you'll know it's real. I said, are we going to build our theology on experience or on the word of God? There's a danger out there. I just want you to see that there's a holiness to God and a glory of God. And we're going to talk about holiness tonight a little bit and in a way that may surprise you. I just want to challenge you to remember the first part of what Jesus taught us when he taught us to pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. May I not lose sight of your glory, your holiness. When we understand that, I think it'll make a big difference on how we live our lives. Go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel 44. We'll look at verses 5 through 14. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, go to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations and admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be my, in my sanctuary, profaning my temple. When you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and of flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols, when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. Here are instructions about who can enter the temple during the millennial kingdom in the temple area. We see, and we've already looked at this, so I won't spend any more time on it, that we already studied how the Zadokian priests, the, the Levites from the line of Zadok, were able to serve in the holy place, in the, in the right in the the, the Holy of Holies and the holy place before the Lord and minister to him. But the rest of the Levites who weren't of the family of Zadok, they're going to be able to serve in the temple, but they'll only serve before the people because of the sins they committed in their past. Now, but he then goes on and says that foreigners, by the way, that's non-Jews, they're allowed in the temple, but only if they're circumcised in their hearts and their flesh. Now, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, this means true believers. But I want to take a little study tonight, again, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. What does he mean when he says only a non-Jew 
who's circumcised in their heart and their flesh can come into the temple area. Our first reaction is that their hearts are right and their privates have had the surgery. But I'm going to show you the scripture tonight shows you that's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's not saying that a non-Jew can come in only if their heart's right and they've had the circumcision of their male part. All right? There's more to it than that. And we're going to let the scripture speak to us about that. So go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verses 1 through 6. And by the way, as I'm about to read this to you, I can't encourage you enough to go back and look at the book of Deuteronomy, especially the last parts that we have here. God lays out for the nation of Israel their whole history before it even happens. As they're about to go into the land and he gives them the repeating of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the reminder and repeating of the law. They'd already been given the law in the book of Leviticus and Exodus. And now they're getting reminded of the law as he's bringing them back into the land or bringing them into the land because after their 40 years of wandering, he lays out for them the whole history. He says to them, you're going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then you're going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And look at verse 30, chapter 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, everything that I said was going to happen, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Now, before I read any more, when's this going to happen? In the millennial kingdom. Remember, it's when they turn to him with their whole heart and their whole soul. Not going to happen until the end of the tribulation period. So this is the millennial kingdom when he gathers them at the end and makes them more prosperous than they were before. But look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Remember how God promised that the, the remnant of the Jews that survived the tribulation period that turn to him and look on him whom they've pierced. All Israel at that time will be saved. The ones that are left, they'll all know him from the least to the greatest. They won't need any Jewish teacher saying know the Lord because they'll all know him. And he says, I'm going to circumcise your hearts at that time and the hearts of your offspring so that you know me. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. That's going to happen again at the, during the millennial kingdom. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Here now we get a little more information. He says, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Let me just say something to you. The physical act of circumcision that God gave to Abraham, which was then to be passed on to all his male descendants, was a cutting away of what? The foreskin or the flesh. Putting the flesh away. That's a picture of salvation. Being circumcised in your heart means that you have put away the flesh and surrendered to the Lord in faith. By the way, were they automatically saved if they were circumcised by having the surgery? No. It was just a picture of something else. Actually, I'm going to show you scripturally. The Bible is very clear that that's not what God's looking at. Hopefully, all of you all have been baptized. But did your baptism save you? Or was it an outward picture of what had happened inwardly? That's what the circumcision was supposed to be. So keep in mind, when God says only for foreigners who are circumcised in their hearts and their flesh may enter into the temple area, I'm going to give you a little heads up. He's not saying those who have their hearts right and have had the surgery. He's saying something more. But we'll let the scripture show you what that is. Go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, look at verses 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. He's talking to the Jews. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here God gives us a little more information. God's not looking at whether or not you've had the surgery. He's looking at your heart. And if a guy's not had the surgery, but he's got his heart right before God, he's considered circumcised. And even though the guy's had the surgery, but his heart's not right before God, he's considered uncircumcised. Because circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So what I want you to see is, God's showing us already that circumcision needs to be done inwardly and in our hearts by who? By God. So why does God then say they must be circumcised in their heart and in their flesh? And here's what I want you to see. Colossians chapter 2 answers that. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 15. In him, in Christ... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of what? By fle of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Do you see what he's saying here? When you were saved, you were circumcised by God in the heart by the putting off of your flesh. By the way, you want further evidence of the fact that God's not going to be checking everybody as they head into the temple area of whether or not they've had the surgery? In Acts chapter 15, there was a problem. There was a Gentile church in Antioch. And some of the leaders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem sent word down to the Antioch Jewish, uh, Gentile church saying, you guys need to be circumcised or you're not saved. This had, Paul had a real problem with this, and so did Barnabas. And the two of them went up to go meet with them in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. And as Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter and all the big shots, if you will, of the early church got together, they, as elders, went by themselves and prayed about it, and they talked about it, and they looked at the scriptures and then they sent a letter back to the Antioch church that said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to send this letter to you. You don't have to be circumcised. So when God says no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh may enter into the temple, there's not going to be someone at the door of the temple saying, drop your drawers. He's saying this. True circumcision of the heart will manifest itself in our putting away of the flesh. It's a putting away of the flesh. Oh, by the way, what does the Bible say we have to do daily? We have to die to self. We have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. You can't tell me, oh, I'm circumcising my heart to the Lord, if your actions don't show that you put your flesh away. And this is what God was saying. He wasn't saying, we're going to check everybody. When they come in, he was simply saying, true believers, those who have been circumcised in the heart and the flesh. In other words, it's manifested itself in their actions. Those guys can come on in to the temple. You want further evidence? I think we'll have opportunity now and then to go into the temple area during the millennial kingdom, don't you? What's your body going to be like then? You're going to have a new body. Are you going to have to have circumcision, guys, to be able to? No. That's the danger of trying to take it and just, well, it says, well, what does the whole of Scripture say? The whole of Scripture says that if I've been baptized in Christ, not baptized immersion in water, baptized immersion in Christ, he's circumcised my heart and he's put away my flesh. I've been circumcised in heart and flesh. And hopefully you all are all as well. Go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Again, look at verses 15 through 27. We're about to get into an interesting little topic here. You say, in circumcision, what an interesting? No, but I think this one's even more interesting. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. 
When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and the linen undergarments around their waist. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is a widow of the priest. They shall teach my people the difference between holy and common and show them how to distinguish between unclean and clean. In a dispute they shall act as judges and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for father or mother or for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. After he has become clean, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. So in these instructions here, we see that the Zadokian priests, the Levites, but they were of the family of Zadok, they're able to minister in the holy of holies, in the holy place before the Lord. And when they do that, they're going to wear special garments, holy garments, and whenever they're going to leave that area to go out into the main area and the big court area where all the other Levite priests are and the other people are, they're to take off those holy garments and lay them in a holy chamber lest they transmit holiness to the people. Isn't that interesting? God says, I don't want you transmitting holiness to the people. Sounds exactly opposite of what we would think, wouldn't, we? wouldn't it be? Well, go to Ezekiel chapter 46. Look at verses 19 and 20. Chapter 46, verse 19, Then he brought me through the entrance which is at the side of the gate to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so transmit holiness to the people. Again, God says... I don't want you to do this out there. I want you to do it in here. So that way you won't transmit holiness to the people. Again, this seems so backwards in our minds. Why this caution? Wouldn't God want holiness to be transmitted to the people? There must be something more here. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to take a look at Scripture and see what the Scripture says about this. The first thing I want to show you is this. Holiness was transmitted through contact. Holiness is transmitted through contact. Huh? Well, let me show you what I mean. Go to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. Look at verses 35 through 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I've commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. 
Hmm. Go to chapter 30. Just go over to the next chapter. Look at verses 22 through 31. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels worth, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that's 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and all the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burning, uh, offer, uh, sorry, altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. Isn't that interesting? Go to chapter, uh, Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. Look at verses 24 through 27. Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So now we see that whatever touches even the offering that was offered to the Lord, now becomes holy. So let's just keep that in mind for right now. We'll lay that foundation. Whatever had come in contact with what was holy is holy. Also, there's something else here. Part of the admonition of not wanting to transmit holiness was to keep a distinction between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. Remember, go back to Ezekiel 44 again and look at it again at verse 23. Ezekiel 44, look at verse 23. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. So keep in mind, part of the reason why he's wanting to keep the holy things separate from the unholy is because he wants to keep a distinction between what is holy and common, clean and unclean. In other words, if everything is holy, in a sense, nothing is. Do you remember, and some of you may not know this movie, The Incredibles, the cartoon movie by Disney, The Incredibles, and, and Mr. Incredible had this little boy who kept trying to want to help him, and he kept shoving him off. Well, later on, that little boy becomes syndrome, and he makes this machine that you can control, and he made this little statement. He said, uh, when everyone is super... No one is. And so, uh, keep in mind, God is wanting to distinguish between holy things and common things, clean things and unclean things. And he says to the priests, these things are holy. These garments are holy. These offerings are holy. I don't want you just to act like they're not amongst the rest of the people. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, Jesus said, if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? The Bible says that we're the salt of the earth. 
We're actually supposed to be in this world, like we've already been looking at it in our study, showing the world the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. We're to be living our lives among the pagans, if you will, in such a way that they see the difference between us and them. But if we don't look any different from them, if there's no distinction, what good are we? Back in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this big movement in churches to try to communicate to the world, we're no different than you. We're just forgiven. Remember those, remember those phrases? We're no different from you. We're just forgiven. Because we didn't want to seem different. We tried to make our churches like the world. No, we are different. There's supposed to be a difference between us and them. We are peculiar people. We are aliens in this world. We are strangers, folks. you got to just accept it. Uh, some of you probably have seen what's going on uh, between the vice president and the lady on ABC on The View, Joy, whatever, Bayer, I don't know how you pronounce her last name. Yesterday, she said that she heard that Mike Prince, Pence hears Jesus talk to him. That's mental illness. The world doesn't understand. And the moment we stop understanding that there's a difference between things set apart for God and things not set apart for God, and we just start acting in the world like what we are is not holy, and we're no different, we lose our ability to be his priests. So when he's saying don't transmit the holiness, what he's saying is don't lose the distinction. Don't lose the distinction. By the way, the transmitting of holiness never, ever passed on salvation to the one that was touched. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Very interesting passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verses 12 through 16. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband, look at this, is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother and sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, though, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's a holiness because of your union with a believer and an unbeliever. God says, don't enter into those. What, what partnership should we have between Christ and Satan? We shouldn't be going into marriages with a believer and unbeliever. But if you're in one, if this is the way you are now and you've come to faith and your spouse is not a believer... Because of the holiness of you, this fact that you've been set apart for God, there's a holiness that's being transmitted to this other one. And who knows? Maybe your spouse will get saved. So therefore, the transmitting of the holiness did not automatically mean they're saved. That's why we need godly parents, godly grandparents. There's a holiness, a distinction that is passed on to kids who were, what does the Bible say? Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. 
Timothy, even though he grew up in a household that they didn't know the Lord, his dad didn't, but his mother and his grandmother did. They had an impact on young Timothy. And I want to challenge you to don't lose the distinction between holy and common, clean and unclean. Does the Bible say that a believer can drink? Yes, the Bible doesn't say that drinking in and of itself is a sin, but listen closely. Too many Christians have taken that freedom and they've lost their distinction. Because they go and party with the rest of the world. Hmm. Jesus knew that the sinners, the, sorry, the sinners knew that Jesus loved them. But they always came out of their encounter with Jesus saying, I'm going to go pay back people four times from what I stole. Jesus said, go and sin no more. We don't act like we have nothing to do with them and we hate them. No, we love them. But they should still realize there's a difference between us and them. And if that has been lost... You've been transmitting your holiness and losing your holiness in the process. You understand what I'm saying? When he said, don't transmit your holiness, he said, don't lose the holiness. It's kind of fun when you let the scripture speak, isn't it? Let's go to Ezekiel 44. Look at verses 28 through 31. God's talking now about the priests. He said, this shall be their inheritance. I love this. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the first fruits of all kinds, and of every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall be, belong to the priests." You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough, that a blessing may rest on your house. The priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast, that has died of itself or is torn by wild animals. Now, as we're going to see in our conclusion of our study of Ezekiel in the next two weeks, we are going to finish Ezekiel. In our conclusion of Ezekiel in the next two weeks, there's going to be a redistribution of the land of Israel for all the different tribes. And if we're going to do a study, and you're going to see that when God had the nation of Israel go into the promised land during the time of Joshua, he said this is where this tribe's going to be and so on, and that's where they got their allotment. But when you see in the millennial kingdom time, it's totally different. The land area is much bigger. Where their tribes were before is not where they're going to be. They're totally moved around. It's an amazing kind of a fun study, which we're going to get into. But the Levites, just like they were in the Old Testament, aren't going to get any land. They don't get any inheritance. They don't get any land that's passed on to them. God is their inheritance, he says. I'm their provision. Now, I'm going somewhere, so stick with me here. But let me also point out to you, don't feel like that that's a bad gig. Because they get, without having to farm, without having to herd, without having to milk, they're getting the first of everybody's stuff. You see it? And no roadkill. That's what the scripture says there. Here's the deal. Haven't we been seeing that we are God's priests in this day and age? We're, during this church age, we're his royal priesthood. And I want you to see something. And we're going to look at it in the scripture in the time we have tonight. God's word says that that is how we should be living right now, that he is our provision. 
that our trust is in him to provide for us. He is our inheritance. We should not be storing up anything down here to make sure we're taken care of because he's going to take care of us. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a retirement account, but I am saying you better not put your faith in that retirement account. By the way, have any of you got retirement accounts tied to the stock market? How's your last couple of weeks been? See, if you're... I've got, I've got a retirement account. We've been putting money aside for years for us as well. And it's tied to the stock market. But I don't care. You know why? If I see it one day, great. If I don't see it, that's fine. I have no confidence in that amount of money that's been set aside for me. I'm not trusting in it. You know why? God is my source. I'm being wise like he teaches me to be. I've studied the ant. But at the same time, I don't trust in that. I can take you to the book of Ezekiel where it says, do this or do that. You don't know which way it's going to go. You were to do what God tells us to do, but we're not to put our confidence in it. And Matthew, we're enough turn there. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth can come in and corrupt it or thieves can break it and steal or the rust can destroy it. But store up treasure in heaven where none of that stuff can happen to it. Oh, and by the way, there will never be a stock market crash in heaven. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 27 through 29. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 27. Jesus has just said it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. I love Peter. Peter said in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. I love this. In case you, I know you just said it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven and only by God's grace can a rich person be saved because, uh, man, this is impossible. With, it, with God, everything's possible. Uh, in case you missed it, Jesus, we gave everything up. What will there be for us and what will we have? Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, by the way, that's not heaven, that's the millennial kingdom, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, talking to the 12 apostles there with him. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He says, I'm paying attention, Peter. And the fact that you've left everything, you don't realize it. You're getting the best interest rate you could ever imagine. We, we get excited if we can get 10%, maybe 12. By the way, how much did, we, how much did our savings accrue in interest? Because our tax person asked us, Becky, how much did our, accru- our savings accrue last year in interest? Yeah, it was $1.27. Our tax person called us up and said, oh, we need to know how much interest did you get from your savings last year? And we have savings. You know how much interest we got? $1.27. Woohoo! Getting a frosty on the way home tonight at Wendy's. Oh, they went up? Oh, then never mind. All right. Listen. You are his priests. He's your provision. And he's promised he'll take care of you. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. We all love to quote how God will never leave us nor forsake us. But very few of us know the context of that quote. 
Hebrews 13, look at verses 5 and 6. Look at the context. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Folks, when you really understand that he's your provision, he's your inheritance, you won't get worried about whether or not you're making money or losing money. Actually, back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, God said to the nation of Israel, and he says it to us as well. He says, look, don't say to yourself, my right arm or the strength of my right hand is made for me this wealth. For it's the Lord determines whether or not you make money. We are his priests. And he is our provision. Oh, and by the way, take it from someone who lives that way. I live off of whatever the donations are to the ministry or whatever I get paid to speak here or there. We've never, ever lacked. And I don't know if you guys have known us for very long. We don't send out letters asking for money. He's our provision. Uh, let me close with a cool passage that I want to encourage you with that kind of ties with something I just kind of hinted at. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Paul, who again also lived off the donations of church people. He broke all the rules, the unwritten rules, that those of us who live off of the donations of other people live by. He broke them all. Let me show you what I mean. In Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 14, he's thanking the Philippian church for sending a financial gift with Epaphroditus for him. He says, it was kind to you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you and you only. Now, hang on for a second. I'm on the board of ministries, and I hear too many ministries saying, we don't have enough churches supporting us. How can we go contact these churches and see if they'll support us? You know, we, don't, we do not contact churches. We do not contact people and say, hey, would you add us into your budget? We have never done that because... God is my provision. I don't need to go try and beat the doors down. He said he'd take care of me, and we're going to see that in just a second. But here Paul said, you are the only church that helped. And keep reading what he said next. Even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's a hundredfold. I have received full payment from Epaphroditus, Sorry, I have received full payment and I am more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to pleasing to God. Look at what he says. He says, oh, by the way, even though you're the only church that's ever taken care of me, I've got plenty. By the way, most guys that live like I do are afraid to say we're well supplied. You know why? In the flesh, we think, if people hear you're well supplied, they'll think, well, I'm not going to give any more then. He's got all he needs. And humanly, we always go, don't tell them you're well supplied. They may stop giving. Are we looking to man to supply us, or are we looking to God to supply us when we have that fear? Oh, let me just tell you, just to preach your ministries is well supplied. We are. God's blessed us like you wouldn't believe. You know why? Because our God is a generous God. And when you trust him, 
He loves to show off, but he's waiting for you to trust him. My wife and I have learned over the years, and we're teaching our kids, money is just a tool that God uses to teach us. You don't hopefully store tools. I need more tools. No, it's a tool. It's something God uses. And as his priests, I want to say to you, he is your provision. He is your inheritance. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 at the very beginning? You don't have to turn there, but if you want to go look at it later on, when Abraham's worried about the fact that he's got no descendants yet and God's promised him this child, God shows up in chapter 15 and he says to Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, you still think you're going to be taken care of if you have a baby boy. That isn't going to be what takes care of you. I'll take care of you. And look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let me say something to you. Has God promised to supply all of your needs? The answer is yes. Listen closely. Now my next question is, will all of your needs be supplied? Be careful how you answer. Because our immediate answer is to say yes. No. Look at the context. This promise was made to a group of people who in their poverty, 2 Corinthians 8 talked about it, were willing to be generous. They trusted the Lord, and when they trusted the Lord, he provided for them. If you don't trust the Lord, but try to take care of yourself, is God going to bless that? Or is he going to let you experience want? What did Paul say? I've learned the secret of being content. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. He had to be taught. God is your provision. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've learned the secret. Is God promised to supply all of our needs? Yes, he is. But that promise was made to people who were trusting in the Lord as their provision and generous. He actually may withhold for you, from you, to get your attention if he needs to. But I just want to remind you, the priests who have gotten, will be given no inheritance, got the best deal. And that's what we've been given now, the best deal. You know why? Because the one who owns it all, the Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the one who's our daddy, the one who loves us and is generous gives it to those who trust him. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.